0: Well, welcome, everybody. Good morning. How are we this morning? It's great to be with you all. Uh, If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 8. We're going to jump right in. Um, We're going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And I do just want to give one brief announcement. If you are new to Deer Creek, and if you'd like to meet some people on staff or just make connections here and hear what maybe taking your next step in faith would look like, I would invite you to join us next week for starting point. So it's April 25th during the 10 a.m. service starting point at the 10 a.m. service. If you want to sign up for that, you can go out to the next steps table, which is right out here in our lobby. You can scan the QR code and it'll bring you right to the sign-up page. And if you don't know what a QR code is, don't ask me because I'm still not entirely sure how that works or what that is either. Uh, So you can ask somebody else. Hey, but before uh, we read our passage in Romans chapter 8, let's pray and we'll dive right in, okay? Heavenly Father, we pray that what we just saying is true. We are prone to wander. We're prone to wander from you. We're prone to wander from your goodness. We're prone to wander from the many things that you have in store for us and the joy and abundant life that's found in you and your son, Jesus Christ. God, we feel that. And we sense that in our own hearts. We see that in the way that we carry out our own lives. And we thank you that you graciously call us back to your word. You graciously call us back to your son. And by your spirit, you work in our hearts to really hear your message, and and learn from your message, and grow in your message. And God, we need that to to penetrate us now. So would you speak to us? Uh, Would you use me, Lord, simply as a means to bring forth your scriptures? And would you teach us now as your servants and your disciples? And we ask this all in the name of your Son, Jesus, by your Spirit. Amen. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, this is the Word of God. For I consider... So my mom has a good friend. Her friend's about 50 years old, and they found out recently, she'd actually had this condition for most of her life, but they found out recently that she has a condition known as scleroderma. Uh, Scleroderma is an autoimmune disease, and as an autoimmune disease, it's uh, a disease in which the normal tissue of your body is replaced with really this fibrous, dense, thick tissue And so normally what your immune system is supposed to do is, right, it's supposed to defend your body. It's actually supposed to protect your body against infection and disease. But in patients with scleroderma, the immune system, which is meant to protect, turns on itself. And what happens is that it triggers other cells, cells uh, that produce collagen, this protein in your body, it, it makes these uh, collagen proteins turn into these hard, thick, scarring-type tissues. And my mom's friend has what's known as esophageal scleroderma. So her esophagus is quickly kind of turning into a thick, fibrous, hard type of tissue. And the result is that she has difficulty swallowing. There's a lot of pain when she's swallowing. She oftentimes chokes when she's having a snack or just a meal, and she's plagued with this severe abdominal pain, so much so that she was recently admitted to a hospital, and because of this condition, she's lost nearly 50 pounds, and they don't think that she's going to make it throughout the year. And this system, this this immune system, right, designed to fight infection is actually counterproductively not fighting infection actively turning against itself and turning the body against its natural process. And the question is, why does this happen? (laughs) And this is just one of many stories that many of you know, many of you have maybe experienced. Why does this happen? Why is there such a thing as scleroderma? Another way to state this is, what's wrong with the world? You know, when my son Eli was first born, he had to spend about a week in the intensive care unit in the NICU. And he had low blood sugar counts, so when they first pricked him for his blood sugar, they found out that he wasn't even registering on this thing. So they had to put him in the NICU, and he wasn't feeding very well. He wouldn't take a bottle, or he wouldn't breastfeed either, so they had to put a feeding tube in. And this long process, my wife and I thought, we may never bring our firstborn child home. And for us, that was just a scare. But I know for some of us in here this morning, that's a reality. You maybe didn't bring a child home. Or for many of you, you know of a brother or a sister who you're not able to see again, a spouse who you loved. That's now gone. That's your reality. And you're asking the same question, what is wrong with the world? And we have to admit, right, that conversations like this can make us very uneasy. In fact, uh, we'd rather not talk about them. That conversations about death and suffering, tragedy, They make us so exceedingly uneasy, so much so that we can be tempted to actually even deny their reality, or we're prone to thinking that we can somehow manage the effects of the world, manage the decay and death that we see around us. Ann Patchett, she's a best-selling author. She put it this way. She was writing following the tragedy of the Beltway Sniper. Remember in Washington, D.C. in 2002, when a sniper was indiscriminately taking out lives, 17 total, she wrote in an op-ed, The fact is, staving off our own death and suffering is one of America's national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we're always hedging against mortality. But despite our best intentions, it is absolutely coming. Tim Keller, he's a writer, he wrote, life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage it. So whether it be natural disaster, whether it be 10 people in Boulder, whether it be personal betrayal, financial reversal, moral failure, mental illness, injustice, our response usually to these realities is on the one hand, denial, saying things like, well, that won't happen to me, or that only happens to other people, or poor people, or people who don't take precautions, or people who are, you know, just not as wise and as smart as I am. Or our other response is management management and we say things like well if we only get the right people in office or if we get our social systems right or if we provide better education and awareness then finally nothing like this will ever happen again you guys might remember a book it was written by ernst becker it was called the denial of death great book Ernst Becker uh, wrote that both of these responses to death and suffering, whether it's, you know, denial or management, he says is a failure to, quote, take life seriously. And he continues writing, Whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is False. See, any idea that you have about the world where you can just simply deny the hard things, the hard sufferings that we see around us, or manage them somehow, is just a denial of reality. All it is, is falsehood. And if you notice, Paul, in the very first uh, verse that we read this morning, Paul doesn't deny the fact of suffering. In fact, he addresses it head on. He actually has a term for it, right? He called it, quote, the sufferings of this present time. The sufferings of this present time and if you're at all acquainted with the Bible, you know that the sufferings of this present time are actually one of the dominant themes in the scriptures. The sufferings of this present time can be seen all the way in Genesis. If you were just to read the first five chapters of Genesis or so, you would see there murder, betrayal, calamitous flood, sexual predation, warfare, famine, the list goes on and on and on. And then in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, it starts out, it opens with God's people in slavery and oppression. And then once they're liberated out of that slavery and oppression, they're then tasked with wandering for 40 years, 40 years in a desert wilderness, and intense trial and testing. The wisdom literature, the book of Job, for instance, is 40-some chapters wrestling with the seemingly inordinate suffering of good people, good people in the world. Or the Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of 150 poems in the Bible, many of which are addressing People who are under extreme duress, either because of their own misdeeds or the misdeeds of others. So the sufferings of this present time are part and parcel of what it means to live in this world. So therefore, the Bible and Paul address them head on. They don't overlook them or deny them. They're faced squaredly. And so the question for us this morning is, well, how do we face them? And what I want to do this morning, if you were with us last week, I just asked one question. It was the question, what is adoption? What is adoption? And it was following on what Paul talked about in the passage immediately before the one we just read this week I want to take a similar approach and just ask two questions this week the first is what's wrong with the world what's wrong with the world The second question is what is the hope of the world? What is wrong with the world and what is the hope of the world two questions those are our two headings beginning with the first what is wrong with the world?" And Paul actually takes a stab at this question and he does so by saying this really remarkable term. He says, the world is subjected to futility. Beginning in verse 19, he writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Now that word futility is a Greek word that simply means emptiness, frustration. It means purposelessness, something that in this world is just transitory, something that is subject to pass away. And when I think of this, I I think of the myth of Sisyphus. You guys ever heard of Sisyphus? It's a Greek myth. It's about this guy, his name's Sisyphus, and he has been eternally condemned by Hades, who is the god of the underworld, to take a boulder, it's a boulder about the size of Sisyphus, and he's supposed to roll it up a mountain every single day. And his job is to roll it up this mountain, whether it's on his back or he pulls it or he pushes it. But what he doesn't know is that right as he gets to the top of the mountain, right as he gets to the summit, Hades has put a spell on the boulder So that just as he's about to push it over the edge and finally accomplish his task, the boulder slips away out of his hands and starts rolling down the mountain or he trips over a twig or it falls and rolls off his back. And it goes all the way down the mountain and Sisyphus has to walk back down the mountain and the next day pick the boulder up and go back up to the top. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Well, Paul has that kind of similar idea in mind when he uses this Greek word translated futility. What he's saying is that everything in creation, everything, when we look outside, everything in creation, everything that seems like it's going to last, everything that seems like it will reach maturity, everything that seems like it's going to bring forth life and flourishing, Paul's saying it has an expiration date. Because it's been subjected to frustration and it's been subjected to futility. In fact, there's one book of the Bible. It's devoted completely to this idea of the futility of creation. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes starts with this word, futility. But it's just translated different in the Old Testament to vanity. It starts out with Solomon, who's the king of Israel. And he's looking around all of the earth and he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And this book is about Solomon going and pursuing all the things of the world, right? He goes and pursues education and he finds the pursuit of human knowledge to be vanity, to be purposeless. Pleasure, self indulgence, honor. Through fame and recognition, even work, toil, all of the hours he pours into work, the beauty of creation, he meditates on that and he says all of those things in themselves are subjected to futility, they're subjected to frustration, all of them have an expiration date. You remember it was actually just over two years ago now, the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, they were actually undertaking a renovation project, ironically enough. To uh, rebuild the, the spire, you know, the big pointy thing that goes into the sky. And if you know anything about the Notre Dame Cathedral, it took almost 100 years to build. It's over a millennium old It survived desecration during the French Revolution, where the revolutionaries during that time went and were trying to overthrow every single piece and cultural artifact of the world that preceded them, and it even survived that. You know, it's one of these beautiful pieces of cultural success, and two years ago, the world kind of just stood in shock as we saw the spire of the Notre Dame Cathedral bursting up into flames. And as heartbreaking as it was, that really is an illustration of this creation, This creation is subjected to futility. Nothing will last. Everything has an expiration date. And we also have uh, some scientists in here. I know a lot of engineers. And there's actually a law of the universe that proves this point. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy, right? Meaning everything in this world is deteriorating, whether it's your children, whether it's the stars, whether it's trees, animal life, even your BMW 7 Series right? You think it's going to last. It's not. All things are in a state of entropy. They're all declining. Futility. It's kind of like if you're a parent, like, I think that I'm having a lot of progress with my kids, right? My daughter, Annie, she's almost two years old, and she's starting to like put her own diaper in the trash, cute things like that, and kind of take off her own shirt, and we seem like we're making progress, and then she learns the word no. (laughs) Everything's stifled, and so everything you ask her, Annie, will you now put your diaper in the trash? no, or, Annie, do you want this for lunch? No. And we've tried to trick Annie, by the way. You can try this. And we've videotaped her doing it. We say, Annie, do you want us to pay for your first car when you turn 16? She says, no. <laughs> Annie, do you want us, do you want us, you know, to help you pay for college? No. I said, well, you don't know. We don't know what interest rates will be on student loans then, Annie. She still <laughs> says no. We even asked her, you know, if she wanted us to pay for her wedding, and she hasn't got us a response yet. She had to think about that one. But we got her on video recording, and I'm pretty sure a verbal contract is binding in the state of Colorado, so we will show that to her. Hey, but notice what Paul says here. Paul says that is to be expected. And notice what he says also is that it wasn't supposed to be this way. He says the creation waits in a year longing for the revealing of the sons of God, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, namely God. In other words, futility wasn't the original design of God. It wasn't his original intention. That's not how God made the world. It was subjected in futility by God. And there's actually a history behind this. How did it get this way? Well, again, it starts all the way back in the book of Genesis. And we see that when God creates the world, there's this perfect harmony light and darkness blend together in perfect harmony sea and sky earth vegetation animals and then god creates adam his first creature his first creature first human being and we're told god said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion that means oversight He's saying, let them have oversight. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So Adam made in God's image is given oversight over everything, all of creation. And then God, after he's created all of this, given Adam dominion, made him in his own image. We're told God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So that's scene one of the Bible. Scene one, creation, very good. All of God's creation is in harmony. Creation's now working for Adam, right? Blessing and flourishing for Adam. But then there's scene two. Scene two, Adam, who's given this oversight, dominion over creation, he decides, Adam decides not to live by God's original design, not to live by God's definition of what is very good, and not to live a life God-dependently, but instead, he desires to live by his own design, and he desires to define what good and evil are for himself, and he desires to live a life independent of God, and the result is Adam turns away from God, and we see the downward spiral, entropy, that's scene too. And everything now under Adam's dominion, we're told, is under God's curse, So after this sin, God approaches Adam and he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Creation is no longer working for Adam's flourishing, it's working against Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's original harmony of creation has been fractured, it's been destroyed. Now, if you watch an orchestra and you have people who have degrees from Berkeley and degrees from You know, the Juilliard School of Music, and they're playing the cello, and they're on the piano, and you got one on the bass. If they all come prepared, but the conductor doesn't come prepared, if the conductor fails at his task, the whole orchestra goes awry, doesn't it? If the conductor doesn't come and do this, for somehow, for some reason, music players just can't play the music. I've never understood that. But they just can't. And so too with Adam. As the leader of creation, right, in his fall, all of creation falls with him. All of things fall out of harmony. So what's wrong with the world? Well, because of Adam's sin, we and creation are now under God's curse, and the whole creation is subjected to futility. Everything has an expiration day. So when we look at the news and we see things of oppression and death, exclusion, Injustice, suffering, these are the result of a world subjected to futility, the result of a world under God's curse. And now, I know, because I've thought this before too, there are many of us, and we say we are modern people, we're intelligent people, we're enlightened people, and we're tempted to talk about the story of Adam and Eve and a garden and a curse, and we think we've outgrown that story, surely. Surely we've outgrown that story. We can't be expected to believe those stories anymore. They sound like myths. They seem outdated. And you wouldn't be alone. In fact, Rudolf Boltmann, he was an existentialist philosopher. He wrote, we cannot use electric lights and radios and avail ourselves of modern medical science and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of the Bible. So you see, in other words, hey, we live in the modern era. We use modern technology, we use modern medicine, modern scientific advancements to believe in Adam, garden, curse. We've outgrown that. That is simply the spirit wonder world myth. And let me just say to that that Jesus, who many consider the wisest person to ever live, he spoke of Adam, he spoke of the garden, he spoke regularly of God's curse. Great intellectuals of the past, men like Thomas Aquinas, Teresa of Avila, many others, they believed in Adam, they believed in the garden, they believed in the curse. So don't you see, it's very culturally narrow of us today to say things like smart people don't believe in that, especially when that might be the best explanation for why the world is the way that it is. After all, we often hear it said, don't we? People should not suffer, people should not be excluded. People should not die of hunger. People should not suffer oppression. Well, I would ask you, if you don't believe in the narrative and the story of the Bible, I would ask you, on what basis do you say people should not suffer? On what basis do you believe people should not suffer violence? The reason I ask that is because the main alternative story to the Bible regarding creation, regarding the world, regarding why the world is the way that it is, the main Explanation for why the world is the way that it is is the secular explanation, the secular theory of natural selection. And natural selection teaches, doesn't it? It teaches that natural selection depends on death, it depends on destruction, it depends on violence and the strong against the weak for the advancement of species. So, these things, according to natural selection, are perfectly natural. We should expect. Suffering, violence, the use of power for advancement, these things are the means by which species advance. These are the way that we reach our evolutionary potential. So violence, suffering, death, these are normal means of natural selection. They are a given. They should be expected. So for us to say they should not be is for us to cut off the very branch that we're sitting on if we believe in natural selection. We're actually disproving the theory we're trying to prove. It's only the story of Christianity that says this world is wrong and it is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's the only worldview that says that and it's the only real worldview that gives us a sense of why we viscerally feel that injustice and oppression and miscarriage are wrong because we know that they are wrong, that they're the result of something that is not natural and Paul takes this Thing seriously, this thing of suffering. In fact, he compares it to childbirth. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly. So see, Paul says here, if, if you are groaning, if you're groaning because of mental health, if you're groaning because of a sick loved one, or you just feel weary or overwhelmed or anxious. There's not something wrong with you. No, there's something right with you. There's something right with you. You're actually seeing the world clearly, and you're seeing that there's something wrong with the world and that there are things that are that should not be, and they drive us to groan because this world is not the way that it should be. You know, Jesus himself did this. Jesus, one time, he was told that his friend Lazarus, one of his precious friends, was dying. So Jesus proceeds to go to his house. And as he's walking there, he arrives some days later, and he finds out upon his arrival that his good friend Lazarus had died, and that his good friend Lazarus was actually in the grave and that he'd been buried for four days. And so the Bible tells us Jesus' reaction to death, Jesus' reaction to suffering in the shortest verse of the Bible, and I think it's the shortest verse to show us this very reality of how God responds to suffering, we're told, Jesus wept. That's it. Jesus wept because he was seeing the world clearly. He was saying that the only recourse in this world is to groan, to lament and anger and, and grief over the state of creation and to say, this isn't right. So what's the hope of the world? What's the hope of the world? Is there hope? We've seen creation is subjected to futility under God's curse because of human sin. So what's the hope of the world? Well, we go back to the story of Lazarus. And just before Jesus arrived to see his friends and to hear about his friend dying, we're told Jesus was approached by a woman named Martha. And Martha came up to him and she pleaded with Jesus and said, Jesus, if you were here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He would have been alive still. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Talking about Lazarus. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let me ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe this? If you don't believe this, I would ask you to say, what hope do you have? Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus, to comfort Martha, said, hey, in me, belief in me, hope in me, There is hope beyond this world, hope even beyond death. Those who believe in me shall not die. Those who believe in me will experience resurrected life. Just as Jesus was resurrected, you too will be resurrected. There actually is hope. Life beyond the futility of this creation. The Bible has a term for it. It's called glory. Glory. Glory meaning glorified life without sin, without pain, without tears, without death. In fact, all of creation, all of creation is anticipating this to come. All of creation is waiting for this to come. Paul says that in verse 19, he said, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, when the sons of God will be resurrected. The, the imagery there is creation's on tiptoes, looking, stretching its neck, waiting for that day to come when all things will be glory, will be glorified, when suffering gives way to resurrection life. And that's why Paul uses that metaphor of birth pains, by the way, because <laughs> birth pains are temporary. They're very real, don't get me wrong, But they are temporary, aren't they? They always give way to life. I've been through three birthing experiences. Three birthing experiences so far. My first one of Eli, lots of pain. The umbilical cord was actually wrapped around his neck, so it was very complicated. He came out fine. Everything's fine. Lainey, on the other hand, our second. My wife goes into labor at 9.30. Lainey was born at 11.30. And so I had to rush to get my kids over to the babysitters. We're driving in the car, and Hannah is writhing in pain. As we're on the way to the hospital, and her contractions are about 40 seconds apart, and she's just saying, I can't wait to get an epidural. I can't wait to get an epidural. And I'm thinking, you ain't getting no epidural. I'm not going to be the one to tell you, though. I am not going to be the one to tell you. Anyway, so we get to the hospital, and the baby comes. Lainey comes. I kid you not, in about 20 minutes of us being there, she pushed. She's screaming. There was a vein that was coming out of her neck that I still have dreams about. And... (laughs) As the baby comes out, one of the nurses from the other room came in and said, "Is everything all right?" The person in the other room said, "That's the reason I got an epidural." <laughs> I felt for her. I felt for her. My second birth, or, or sorry, our third, uh, our third childbirth, we got a double. You know, two kids, two for one. And pregnancy, it's rough, right? Even before the birth pains, pregnancy's rough. There's back pains, hot flashes, indigestion, nausea. And then there's what your wife has. It's terrible. It's awful stuff. You, girl, women, you don't even know, right? You don't even know how hard it is for the men, right? You'll never know how hard it is to sit next to your wife and say, I can't help you. It's so painful. It's so painful. I'm sorry, women. Hey, the, the point being, there is a point. The point being that the groans of childbirth always lead to new life. There's always hope in the midst of the child pains. New, abundant, joyful, precious life. Paul says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So that's the hope of the world. The world is awaiting this resurrection life, this resurrection glory. Glory is not just for followers of Jesus, but all of creation. All of creation. God will remake all things after the resurrection glory of Jesus and his followers. So it works both ways. In Adam, his failure results in futility. In Jesus, in his perfection, his life, and his resurrection, all things will be glorified. So it works both ways. God's curse will be reversed into blessing. Suffering will give way to peace. Death will work backwards and bring eternal life. And futility will surrender to flourishing. And when Paul sets these two things side by side, which he does, glory over here, suffering over here, he says, the comparison, it's incomprehensible. You can't compare them. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In another place, Paul, he he equates this to a scale. He says the sufferings now, they are a light momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. It's this improportionate scale that you just can't even compare And we have to keep that in front of us. Eternity has to frame the sufferings of the present. It has to, otherwise you will be crushed in hopelessness. C.S. Lewis, he wrote in The Silver Chair. This is part of his Chronicles of Narnia series. It's just children's books. Well, in The Silver Chair, what happens is the three main characters, Puddleglum, Jill, and Eustace, they're trapped in a sunless underground uh, controlled by an evil witch. And in this sunless underground, they don't have trees, they don't have grass, there's obviously no sun, there's no Aslan, who's the Christ figure, there's nothing. And the witch, as she hears Puddleglum, Jill, and Eustace talking about their memories of the overworld in Narnia, she's filled with envy and she laughs at the children and says, well, what is the sun anyway? You don't even know what the sun is, you can't even see it. And they're kind of scratching their heads and they're trying to create words for it, they're like, well, it's kind of like a light bulb. And the witch says, well, what is Aslan? He's kind of like a cat, you know, he's, but bigger and more ferocious and not domesticated. And scoffing, the witch replies, your son is a dream and Aslan is just a projection to make, to make believe in a cat that gives you comfort. And she says to them hypnotically, there never was any world but mine. There is no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And Puddleglum, breaking her spell, says, you know what? You may be right. Suppose we have only dreamed. Suppose trees and grass and sun and moon and stars and Aslan himself were all made up. Then all I can say is that the made up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones of your world. Suppose this pit of a kingdom of yours is the only world. And I love what he says. Well, that's a funny thing when you come to think about it. We're just babies making up a game, if you're right. But four babies playing a game can make a play world which licks up your real world hollow. We have to keep that in front of us because it is tempting to believe that the sufferings of this world, though they seem most true, though they seem most heavy, are not compared to the eternal weight of glory which awaits the children of God for those who have faith in Jesus. We have to allow eternity to frame our presence in order to give us hope. You know, I have to do this daily. I have to do this daily, where I have to say my anxiety, my fears, my insecurities, my sufferings, those do not frame eternity. If they did, I wouldn't want to live for eternity. But if eternity frames my present, then I have hope, knowing that my anxiety, my fears, my insecurities, and my sufferings will not endure past the expiration date of this life. Jesus, his resurrection, his life, his eternity, that's what frames our presence. If you you have two prisoners going going to prison for a decade, let's say, one of which has a family that awaits him on the other side that he knows he's going to go back to once his sentence is complete. And on the other hand, you have this other prisoner who finds out just before he's about to enter the prison gates that his family had been taken in a horrific accident. Who would approach their prison sentence with hope and optimism and joy knowing something greater comes beyond this prison cell? It's only one of them. Otherwise, the prison cell is the only hope for the person that's lost everything he had beforehand. And Paul says, verse 24, he says, This is the hope we wait for. He says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, it's not a hope we can see. It's not a hope we can see. We can't see it because when we look around, what do we see? Disharmony and death. But he says, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. We wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. See, we don't see this eternal hope, this eternal glory with our eyes because we can't see it. We see it with the eye of faith, an eye of faith that rests in Jesus, knowing that this God of glory came down and endured our present sufferings. Knowing that this God of glory suffered all the way to the cross, and was raised again to newness of life and promises glory is to come. We have hope in Jesus because we know that glory in him is not just an aspiration. It's not just wishful thinking. Like, I wishfully think the Broncos will win the Super Bowl. It ain't happening. But with Jesus, hope is a certainty. Hope is more real than we can imagine. Howard Thurman, I'll close on this. Howard Thurman, he was uh, invited to lecture at Harvard in 1947, and he was invited to lecture on what was his specialty, which was African-American spirituals. And he remarked that when he would look at African-American spirituals, there was one theme that was so dominant over all other themes. It was eternal life. It was heaven. And during his speech, Thurman quotes, quote said, such an aspiration was a sharp contrast to the dimly lit cabins with which they were familiar, they sang a perfection, beauty, truth, and goodness. For those singing, heaven was an intensely personal, and it was a fact that shaded their whole experience. For here at last was a place where a slave was counted in and was treated with great dignity. See when they sang those songs, Thurman was saying heaven eternal life was as real as their own chains it was as real as the slavery with which they endured and in a Q&A session after this people are asking him questions and Thurman you know he's wickedly smart very very sharp man one person got up and said yeah you know what those songs might have given them hope Dr. Thurman but isn't it a problem such a life doesn't exist why give them false hope and Thurman replied if heaven is not real their hope is not real But these men and women had a real living hope that enabled them to patiently endure their present circumstances. If someone were to come to them and say, imagine there's not a heaven, and you can have life in this world, just straighten up your back, it would not have made sense to them. It would have been utterly incomprehensible. These men and women were trapped in physical pain and crushing poverty, and what enabled them to persevere and on occasion to even sing was that they had a living hope as real to them as their own present experience. Friends, if you have faith in Jesus, resurrection life is not pie in the sky. It's not a silver lining. It's not just an aspiration. Paul assures us, just as Jesus was raised in glory, we too are awaiting a certain living hope that we will be raised in glory and creation will follow after us. That is the hope to which we were saved, a hope of glory that licks hollow the sufferings of this futile creation, a glory with no scleroderma. A glory of no NICU, a glory of no death, no tears, no curse, as Paul says. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a lasting, real, and eternal hope. That our wor- this world is not our home. you are coming to remake and renew all things and that you will one day bring us and all of creation with us into the resurrection glory of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that for those of us and the many of us who are suffering through the present sufferings of this time and are subjected to the futility of this creation. God, we pray and plead with you that you would have mercy on us. Give us faith. Give us an eye of faith that sees Jesus and the glory which is to come. Encourage us with this reality that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory which is to be revealed to us. And God, we look forward to that day. We look forward in hope. Give us patience as we wait that day. And we pray, along with your saints of old, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.